Turn with me to Philippians chapter 4, if you have your Bibles with you. If you'd like to use one of the Pew Bibles this morning, you'll find the uh, text on page 982, or of course printed in your bulletin this morning. We've come now to the last chapter of Philippians, and uh, it, though it is the last chapter, we're in fact going to take several weeks to go through this, frankly, delightfully dense uh, section of Paul's letter here, because it's got so much to say to us that is encouraging and challenging, comforting to us, so it, it'll be great to look at this together. The verses that we're going to look at today are verses 1 through 3, and these verses kind of flow from the themes that we have seen throughout the book as a whole, perhaps particularly some of the things that came out of chapter 3, but these are themes that Paul has picked up on throughout. In the first verse, uh, I think I mentioned this in prayer, uh, but in the first verse, he's going to call them, us, to stand firm in the Lord. That has already been instructed or encouraged uh, to them, to us, by Paul in chapter 1, verse 27, where we read, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm. This is not the first time that we've been exhorted to stand firm. This is another example of that. And then in the second verse of chapter 4, the second verse that we'll look at in a moment, we'll see the command for these two sisters in the Lord to agree. Uh, and that may sound like the first time that we've had that word, but that is simply a translation of to be of one mind. Okay, so what it, uh, agree equals to be of one mind, and it's the exact same phraseology that we see at the beginning of chapter 2 when Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, of the same love. Uh, so whether you want to call it agree or whether you want to call it being of the same mind, uh, it's the exact same uh, original wording that is being used here. So the point is this. This is not the first time that we are meeting the themes that take up this small sections that we are reading today, but we're going to see them played out in a very, very specific case. If you're familiar with it, you'll see it, and I'll read it for us in just a moment. So let me read it for us, uh, and remember as I read it that this is the Word of God, and according to His promise, it does not and will not go out today without accomplishing the purposes for which He sent it, the intent for which He sent it. So may it do so in our lives today as we hear the word and hear it explained for us. This is the word, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm, thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the book of life. We thank you for these life-giving words and for the book of life that includes the name of the saints, the names and our names of those who have been chosen by your grace and who have found favor through the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we do not boast in anything in and of ourselves, but we are thankful 
keep us humble in light of that great future which awaits the people of God to be with you for all eternity, to be conformed unto you, to be dwelling together in perfect unity before you are triune God for all eternity. May that be our hope and our empowerment as we try to live well in preparation for it today. We pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Uh, bound to maintain and holy fellowship. Uh, that's a mouthful of a title, but I could not resist it. It is the phrase from uh, the Westminster Confession that we confessed together just a few moments ago. It's the opening line of that second section there that says, the saints are bound to maintain and holy fellowship. Sometimes just hearing it in language like that helps us to hear it in a different way, remember it perhaps uh, in a way that's, uh, that's good for us. Uh, we are supposed to get along in the church of Jesus Christ, to say it much more casually. I put the uh, well-known verse on the front of your bulletin wherein the psalmist says and tells us how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. And indeed it is. It is sweet. It is pleasant. But it's not just sweet and pleasant and nice when brothers and sisters get along with one another. The confession says that we are bound to it. We have a moral obligation. We are duty bound to fellowship, to getting along with one another. That's what's being emphasized in our text today. Discord is being called out. It's being called out specifically and agreement is being called forth. So call out the discord, call forth the holy fellowship and the maintenance thereof. The communion of saints then is not some kind of a fringe benefit to salvation. It's not a perk. It's not a, a nice little thing that you get tacked on to the salvation as a bonus. It is, in fact, essential. It's part and part of the redemption that we have in Christ being a communion or the communion of saints. Standing firm in the gospel, that first verse that we read, standing firm in the gospel and for the gospel is standing in unity, in union with Jesus, and then through him and through the union that we have in Jesus in communion with one another. And that means you, and that means us, and that means the people who are sitting all around you right this morning. I have good news for us as we look at this text this morning. Uh, and, and, and the good news is this. We're considering the conflict, especially that we see in verse 2, and that goes into 2 and 3. We've already talked about standing firm in an earlier sermon, and that's the, uh, the context of this, but, but I'm going to focus really on the conflict uh, that exists and, and is seen in 2 and 3. And the good news is this. The disagreement between Euodia and Syntyche is over. It's all finished. I don't know what happened in the event. I, I, we, we don't have any further record 
We don't know if this exhortation and the help that was given to them here, we don't know if that resulted in an end to this particular conflict that existed between these two women at the church in Philippi. But I can tell you with 100% assurance that it's over now. That these two servants of the Lord, these two co-laborers, these two women who along with others whose names are written in the book of life are now at perfect rest and in perfect unity and harmony with one another. They are memorialized in scripture in conflict. They are immortalized through the resurrection, the hope of the resurrection, through their souls now in glory, they're immortalized in union and harmony in Christ. Now, if you'll allow me, I don't mean to make too light of this, but I think we can laugh when we think about the life to come just a little bit. I can't imagine these two saints, these two women, periodically coming up to Paul and saying to him, did you have to write our names down for this? Think of all of the things that we did together, all of the wonderful times that we had together, the times in the word, the times singing, the times fellowship, the time proclaiming the gospel, the times of discipling people in the church, of caring for the children of the church, of preparing meals, of, of providing for the saints who came in and out, of providing for you, of all of the things that you could have written down about our lives. Why this one? <laughs> Every generation of the church since this was written down knows these two women for a conflict that took place at this particular time in this particular place that Paul felt the need to address here. So I imagine them kind of poking him uh, about that but then then on reflection and I'm not trying to make any statements here about how interactions go in heaven or how they're reflected on earth. I can I can imagine them being thankful, though, for every saint, for every church, who has then subsequently looked at this passage and learned or was prompted to pursue reconciliation because they, we, read of their story and sought reconciliation in the Lord, in their Lord. They have died, Euodia and Syntyche, but though they have died, they speak. They speak to those of us who are here today and consider what the word of God has to say about them. They speak to those of us who perhaps in the past, perhaps at this very moment or certainly in the future, will be involved in significant and serious disagreement with another believer in the Lord. Conflict is going to happen. It's going to happen between the saints. It's going to happen even between the very select and best of saints. The best of saints, as it happened, for example, between Paul and Barnabas, and as it took place between the co-laborers with Paul 
Euodia and Syntyche. Let's consider first some. Let's kind of work our way through this and consider what seems to me a logical first question. Who are the parties in the conflict? What's the substance of this conflict? What is the issue that is at hand? That seems to be a natural place to uh, start our inquiry regarding this text. If you're a parent and you've been upstairs and you hear the kids fighting downstairs and you happen to have multiple kids and you hear the kids fighting downstairs, when you come downstairs, what do you want to know? Who's fighting? What's the issue? And one other thing, what's the other thing you want to know? Who started it? Yeah, <laughs> who said it? But yeah, who started it is the thing that you want to know. So those seem like natural questions regarding this particular thing. But here's the, the issue. We actually don't have any answers to those questions. We hardly know anything about this situation. We could, if we wanted to, project and imagine all sorts of things that might have been the cause or might have been the substance of this, but we don't have a lot of that background material about it. There are a few things that we can say, and I'd like to say those and point those out because they're what we have, but they're not going to satisfy us in terms of knowing the answers to those questions that any parent wants to know in the circumstance. First of all, we can note that these are prominent women in the church in Philippi. They receive a high designation from Paul. They are called his co-laborers. They are, in other words, choice servants. And the importance of that is that we don't view them as bad apples, just bad actors in the church. That's not how Paul views them at all. We know that Paul sometimes, particularly in his pastoral letters, ones where he's writing to an individual, will mention people specifically who have done him much harm, and he'll name names in those situations. And those are people who have uh, shown themselves, and we kind of looked at this last week, revealed themselves to be bad apples, uh, those who are actually not of us. That's not the perspective here. So whatever we want to say, these are prominent and significant women in the church in uh, Philippi. They're not bad apples, as Gordon Fee says. Secondly, the conflict was known enough so that Paul felt like he could and needed to call it out publicly. Not all conflicts are of that nature. Okay, let's realize that. Most conflicts are of a more limited nature, a more limited scope, uh, and should be addressed accordingly. So this is not saying here that every conflict that happens, I should stand up here and name names and tell you, well, this person is in conflict with this person agreed in the Lord. But this one had that nature to it. It was known enough that Paul felt like, okay, I've, I've got to address this issue in a public way. And I think along with others who think this as well, that it's a real testament, testimony to these women that Paul feels like he can name their names in a letter like this without crushing them. Okay, so for a lot of people, men, women, doesn't make any difference here, for a lot of people, if, if you name names in a situation like this, they would slink out the back and you would never see them again. Because who wants to be associated with that? But he knows these two well enough, he's worked with these two women well enough, he knows the strength of these, the, the, the fiber, of these women enough to say, I gotta, I gotta address this. 
not going to crush you. It's going to be hard, but I have to address this, and I have to address it in a forum like this, in a letter that's going to be read aloud in the church. And third, uh, you know, I, I said it would be good to know what the issue is. We actually don't know the issue. There's nothing said here about what the issue is. It seems doubtful that it would have been some significant issue of theological heresy because Paul is very even-handed in what he's saying here. He, he doesn't say that one of you should repent because you're wrong and the other should receive the forgiveness. He's very even-handed and the language is presented very carefully to be even-handed and one knowing Paul realizes that if it were an issue of some gross immorality, uh, or if it were an issue of theological heresy, Paul would not have been like that. He, he would have called it out. He would have said specifically what it was, because that's the way he deals with things of that nature. That said, that said, it is important to say as well that there are weighty issues that are involved with this. Paul believes it's significant enough that he needs to address it. And he needs to address it in the language of the letter as a whole. And that's the language that I referenced earlier before I read the text. The language of standing firm, of laboring together side by side. We've seen that any number of times now in the letter. And of being of one mind. And so Paul's taking the themes and he's applying them to this very concrete situation and, and therefore, it's of some significance. It's of some importance to them, not only, but to the life of the church uh, as well. I, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that there are some indications that amongst the other reasons for the letter, and there are several that we've articulated along the way, the thanks for the gift, the explaining why Epaphroditus is coming back, and Paul's plans and things like that and dealing with some heresies, that amongst the purpose of the letter is to deal with this conflict. And some of these themes, especially the ones that we've seen developed throughout, seem to be leading towards addressing this particular conflict that exists, whatever the actual substance of it well. It's easy for us to imagine how a conflict between these prominent church workers would have hindered the advance of the gospel in Philippi. And that's, if you'll recall the language particularly of chapter 1, that's what Paul has been concerned about. The advance of the gospel within the church, as the gospel grows uh, in, in the church itself, and people loving one another and growing in the Lord. And the advance of the gospel, meaning the good news of the gospel going out to the community, and people repenting and believing and becoming members of that church. It's not hard to see that that gets compromised when there's conflict between church leaders, and it's not difficult to see that that would kind of sap the church of joy. You know, that, that, that that's taking a tap and drilling it into the side of the church, and drip, drip, drip out goes the joy when there's conflict. So. Though we're in the dark about the details, those are at least a few things that we can say about the whole and the context of this. Prominent women, a significant issue, uh, whatever that particular uh, issue was, and then the desire for reconciliation. What then is being urged 
here of uh, these women in this situation. Here, we can be completely clear, right? What does Paul want to see here? He wants to see agreement. He wants to see these two women be of one mind. Resolve this conflict, bring it to an end, reconcile with each other, forgive each other. If this has gotten to the level where there has been offense on one side or the other, confess it where you need to confess it, receive the forgiveness or offer the forgiveness where you need to offer the forgiveness. Restore the breach, heal the wounds, stop the fighting, bury the hatchet, mend the fences, pick their idiom, pick their metaphor. That's what he wants. He wants this to stop. And he wants these two choice sisters to agree in the Lord and to be reunited with one another in mind. Jesus said it this way, and Paul simply reflecting the teaching of Jesus, leave your gift, your offering on the altar and go. Go first and be reconciled with your brother. Go be reconciled with your sister and then come back and worship. Don't underestimate the significance of conflict. Go resolve it and then come and worship me. Now, let me say something that I say periodically. The point of this teaching of the communion of the saints in this particular section here is not that we are all going to be the best of best friends with each other in the church. That is impossible. That's impossible. And the point is also not that every effort at reconciliation is going to succeed. People read what took place in Acts between Paul and Barnabas in different ways. Uh, I read it as they could not reconcile. Now, God blessed it, and they used two different missionary teams to go two different ways, but I read that and go, the effort at reconciliation between Paul and Barnabas did not work out. So the point, I don't think, is that every time there's a conflict and you try to resolve this conflict, that you can be assured that that's going to work out perfectly. It might not. But do the things that make for peace. Do them. Pursue the reconciliation, especially with your brothers and sisters in Christ. With, with other people in the world, as you have opportunity, as you have need, you can pursue that. But especially with your brothers and sisters in Christ, when there's conflict, insofar as it depends on you, seek peace and pursue peace. Festering wounds between us are deadly things. And so, Paul says, dear sisters, dear brothers, agree. The entreaty, the appeal, the plea then is clear. And it takes us to what I think is the million dollar question here. That's all well and good, but how do we do that? We're, we're pretty significant. We're pretty entrenched in our positions here. Maybe it's a strategic issue in the ministry of the church. How do we go about resolving this? So let's say you're in conflict with someone right now, right now in this room, uh, with a brother or a sister in Christ, or just a brother or a sister, um, with the parents, with a spouse, with a pastor. What can we glean from a passage like this? Well, I, I think there are several things we can glean 
this isn't all that Scripture has to say about resolving a conflict, but there are some important principles and practices here that we can apply. These are not necessarily in order. First of all is this. Don't leave theology, teaching, and preaching at the theoretical level. Your job is not to come out of a sermon and say, gee, that was interesting, or gee, that was boring, or that was well delivered, or that was not delivered so well. Eric was off his game this morning. That's not responding to the preached word of God. That's not what it's like. Periodically, I use names in a sermon, right? Now, I'm real careful with this because I know what goes on when I drop somebody's name in a sermon. I'm very careful with it. But here, names are names, named. And if I said to you right now, I am aware of a conflict that exists in this church between, and I put your name in there, and somebody else, whoo, what would happen? <laughs> what would happen inside of you, right? The chills would descend whoom, right down your body. You'd feel it immediately in your gut. You'd go, wow, I just got called out specifically in the preached word of God. Well, imagine being these two women, being Euodia and Syntyche, and you're sitting in the context of public worship, and the letter from Paul is being read, and you're thinking as, he, as, as chapter 2 has gone along and chapter 3 has gone along, Maybe you're thinking to yourself, that's hitting kind of close to home. And then chapter 4 comes up. Of course, there aren't these chapter divisions. But chapter 4 comes up, and you get named. Wow. What happens at that moment? What happens at that moment when they hear this? But here's the reality, brothers and sisters. Whether or not I name your name or Paul names our name is irrelevant. God is always speaking to us and to you. God has always got your name attached to the preach word. We recognize that sometimes it hits more home for whatever reason than at some other point. But you can't just sit there and listen to the word of God and think of Philippians 1 and 2 of, of not only being interested in yourself, but being interested in the welfare of others. You can't just hear that and say, well, that sounds nice. Because God is saying your name. That's the way he wants you, us, me as well, to respond to his word and to the preached word in particular. Let it stick in your heart. Let it stick in your soul. And that's what the benefit is of calling out the names. It's now impossible for Eodia and Syntyche to push Philippians 2 off onto someone else. That was possible until this moment. And now it's not possible anymore. Don't push off the word of God. Take it personally. Secondly, standing firm, the call in the first verse, and agreeing are urged in the Lord. Stand firm thus in the Lord. I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. In the Lord. It is not a throwaway line. We might read it quickly. We might think, well, Paul's always saying that. I'm just going to read past that and read kind of quickly through in the Lord. It is not a throwaway line. 
We are in Christ by faith. We have been united to him by the working of the Holy Spirit in us. And because of that, because of the fact that we have union with Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit, then we will be in perfect unity and harmony with each other when the Lord descends from heaven. Remember the setting of this that ended chapter 3 is we are awaiting a Savior, the Lord and Savior to come from the heavenly country of which we are citizens and we're waiting for him to subject all things to himself at that particular time. We are waiting. We have got a future look about us. We've got a future look in everything, including in the relationships that we have with one another. They will be perfect for those who are in the Lord. Perfect harmony with one another. And so if we will be reconciled now, it involves the ability to look future, to know that which is our inheritance. It requires the humility of Christ that's been discussed in chapter 2. It requires that we are pressing on in Christ as we saw in chapter 3. In other words, there is a world of difference between a call to agree and a call to agree in the Lord. And what Paul is saying here is agree in the Lord, in the one, the unspeakable love and grace and humility and sacrifice of Jesus Euodia and Syntyche, would you see your disagreement in light of the humility of Jesus Christ in the Lord? Look at this. Third, third in the kind of thinking of how and what we can glean from this. Get some help if it's needed. Not all conflicts need outside help to resolve them, but some conflicts do. Don't be afraid to get some help from a wise brother or sister. That's what's being said here in verse 3, although it's a little bit cryptic. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. We don't know who true companion is. Right? True companion is a phrase that's thrown in there that somehow that would have signaled who was Paul's talking about, who there in Philippi he's asking, help them out. Help out this brother, this, these sisters, and, uh, and then he names other names as well uh, who are there who have co-labored also. Uh, Gordon Fee does some interesting research and kind of comes up with a, a possibility that the true companion is in fact Luke. Luke, who in Acts 16 stays in Philippi, after, or apparently stays in Philippi after they move along, perhaps. It's, it's kind of neat to think that it might be Luke. Uh, the, the gospel writer, the writer of Acts, who is, uh, who is being called on to help. But we don't know exactly who it is. The point is this, don't be afraid to ask someone for help. Sometimes we need it. Paul wrote uh, to the Corinthians, the Corinthians who had had disagreements amongst members of the church, amongst the brothers of the church, and had sued one another and had gone to a court in order to resolve the conflict between each other. He wrote to them and said this, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? 
What are you doing going out to the court? Get someone in the church who's wise enough to help the two of you to resolve this. And that's what Paul is exhorting them to do here, or exhorting uh, the, the, the person mentioned in verse 3, the true companion, exhorting them to help. Don't be afraid to ask someone. Paul is speaking into this situation, and he's asking someone to help mediate the situation as well. Let me, uh, let me then just pull a few other sideline uh, thoughts from this passage that I think will also help us towards conflict resolution. And I think, uh, I, I think those of us who are parents can recognize these and apply these as well. Let me just note, first of all, the context is set up for us here. The piling up of the terms of affection that exist in verse 1. Uh, this is a very unique pile of terms of endearment that Paul uses here. Therefore, my brothers, which is a collective term, my brothers whom I love and I long for, and then these next two are forward-looking, they're eschatological statements, my joy, my crown, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. This is not a clinical conflict resolution. Paul isn't here suggesting some kind of cold arbitration and certainly not some kind of legally enforced settlement here. Instead, for Paul, the resolution between these two sisters is from, in, and unto love, and a love that is expressed. Now, how many times, I did not count them, how many times in this letter has Paul already called them beloved, friend, delight, my joy, all the terms that are piled up here. He's already done it a number of times. One might say, maybe his amanuensis might say, enough, Paul, <laughs> just get to the point. I've written a number of times now that they're beloved, okay? They get the point. But for Paul, it's not enough to kind of have said it one time in the past. He's about to say something that's going to be very difficult for them to hear. And when you're about to say something that's very difficult for someone to hear, can you, can you coat it with love all around it? Because that's what Paul does. Before he tells them the hard thing, and it's hard to be called out and told you need to resolve this, he tells them about the deep love that he has for them. Another thing, just in this, in this combining some things together, you note that the use of the word entreat, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. This is very carefully balanced. This is not an accusation against one or the other. It's very, it's very measured. It's very parallel, the things that he is saying to both of them. And it is a command, but with the use of the term there, to call them unto this, it's also that idea of urging. So it's not just a command. It's not just Paul saying, listen, straighten up and fly right. Get over this conflict that you've got. I urge you which is putting it then on them to not just be behavioralists and do something different, but rather to let this settle in your heart and in your mind. I'm urging you towards this kind of conciliation. So that kind of language is very helpful in resolution of conflicts. And then one last thing to, to point out here 
is that he sets the conflict of these two choice saints within the beloved community with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. And what he's doing there is he's helping people to see when we're in, when we're in conflict, sometimes that's all we can see. That's all we can see is I'm in conflict with this other person. And, and what Paul is doing is he's, he's lifting up the vision. He's saying, listen, you've got to see something else here. You are part of this beloved community that exists right now. Clement, the other fellow workers that have been your fellow workers, my fellow workers, you're part of the beloved community. And then he lifts their eyes up to heaven. He says, whose names are written in the book of life. If you want to resolve a conflict, it is helpful to help the participants in the conflict to lift up their eyes, to get a little bit more perspective, a little bit more sight than just what has happened right there. To, to, to show, hey, this is what's going on here. Now, can we not find a way to reconcile? Maybe seeing it in a broader context will help you to see that this particular thing is not the hill to die on. It doesn't, it, this, this doesn't require that. Join in one mind with the other person. Brothers and sisters, we are bound to maintain an holy fellowship. I am very glad to say to you today, I don't have any names to call out. I don't have any names to say, this person is in conflict with this person, let's resolve it. Doesn't mean we won't some point in the future. Doesn't mean we haven't at points in the past, but at least we can rejoice in that. But that said, perhaps the Lord, through the word speaking today, has spoken to you and has brought to mind a conflict, a disagreement. And you feel like, the Lord is pushing you to say, agree in the Lord. Be of one mind in the Lord. If that is the case, don't ignore that. In so 